united, we can and will overcome. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. So it's 11 in the morning on Friday. We are two days clear of the election, or at least the closing of polling stations across much of America on Wednesday, Australian time. But there are a lot of things that are still very unclear. Emma and I are both a little bit sleep deprived, so the conversation that's going to follow might be slightly unhinged and slightly incoherent. I talked a lot about my uh, my now my quite open um, disgust at polling and again at the polling industry. Um, we also talked about racist voter suppression practices and what looks like a really you know I think quite a a stirring triumph for democracy in Georgia, where Joe Biden may be able to eke out a victory largely off the back of really organized efforts against voter suppression there. We also talked, of course, about, you know, one of the things that is that is actually quite clear coming out of this election, which is that Donald Trump, Donald Trump's vote is resilient, it is strong, and it is not going away. It is resilient. It is incredibly resilient. And at the moment, at least, it looks like Donald Trump has actually increased his share of the vote on 2016, which I think most people, given polls, as you said, Chloe, did not expect. Um, I'm, in fact, watching Donald Trump on my screen right now, uh, rant and rave as usual about exactly that, about polling and about legal challenges. So as Chloe said, this is very much still unfolding. There is a lot we don't know. And I am absolutely cooked <laughs> yeah so look this is our this is our post-election post-mortem and next week hopefully once we have some much clearer results possibly with joe biden as president-elect possibly with donald trump out of the white house and run away to russia which is my current theory about what's happening next um we will be back with what will be probably a more sober analysis not of the election that's just gone but what happens next Chloe, of course, I've been asked many questions this week, a lot of which I've answered with, I wish I could tell you the answer to that, or I just don't know. One of the ones that comes up again and again is, how did the polls get it wrong again? And of course, built into that question is the assumption that the polls did get it wrong. They were wrong again, just like they were in 2016. And I, to be honest, I am not entirely sure about the answer to that question or the assumption behind it. So I wanted to ask you, given, of course, your expertise in this, were the polls wrong again? So this Friday morning, two days clear of election day itself, polls look the polls look less wrong than they did when we saw that first sort of rush of results that seemed that you know that tipped Florida in the direction of Trump and you know had had a lot of us freaking out for a good few hours there so Florida oh my god Florida yeah you won't you you had a bit of a moment there didn't you um, so look, if you look at it from the national level, and this is, you know, this is quite a similar story to what we had in 2016. If you look at the national level, and if you look at the actual margin between the Trump vote and the Biden vote, then they were broadly on point. They were broadly right about how that would turn out. 
what has been revealed about not only the polls in the 2020 election, but I think, you know, it's really confirmed what we, a lot of suspicions about how polling works dating back to 2016, is that they are not equipped to deal with unexpected events. They're also not sensitive to, to I guess, sort of, a lot of local local events and local politics and how that can transpire and how that can play into a presidential election. They're also not sensitive to some serious demographic differences and they are very bad in some places at helping us to understand the preferences and the opinions of voters from minority ethnic groups. And I mean, the most obvious example of that is, as you said, of course, Florida, where it it looks like the Latino vote has um, gone in a different way, I think, than polling expected, especially in a place like Miami-Dade, where, which is, you know, has been kind of reliably democratic, but this time it looks like the Latino vote there in particular has gone Republican. And, and it's, un, you know, people are making very, um, I think, bold statements about why that is. I think it's too early to do that. But it seems like part of the problem there that you're getting at is is something that I'm also guilty of in, in what I've just said, in that polling has treated the Latino vote as a single block rather than recognising that there are very di- there are very big differences between, for example, Cuban-Americans in Florida or Puerto Rican-Americans in, in Florida and elsewhere. So, so pollsters have kind of treated this minority, minority vote as a block and they shouldn't have. Yeah, and I think no, and I think that's absolutely right. And this is partly a problem of the biases in polling polling's methods. Like so, you know, polling companies typically they conduct they conduct polls in English. So, you know, to to, to conduct a poll in Spanish and to actively reach out to, to Spanish speaking voters, that's almost a bridge too far for them. One answer that pollsters are giving to their failure in 2020 was, well, first of all, they're saying they didn't fail. We've just misunderstood them yet again, um, to which I would say, you know, Nate, Nate Silver, please make your methods more transparent then and stop deliberately mystifying polling so that you look like some sort of savant come election every election. Um, but that's just me being glib. No, but the other... The response from pollsters will it, oh, it's there's an emerging conversation which is saying that the response to 2020, as in 2016, has to be about getting more data, refining methods, getting better at polling. And my response to that is that that's all well and good, and I think it is important to be you know to have more inclusive polling that is more open and more sensitive and and actually attempts to understand particularly ethnic minorities uh, better than it has done in the past. But I also think that there needs to be an expansion of the sorts of methods that not pollsters per se, but anyone who is looking to understand the electorate and perhaps to predict from it, they need to start taking qualitative methods much more seriously. So, you know, you give the example of voters of, of voters in Florida, and like you said, there are a lot of a lot of theories that are going going about. I'm at this point I'm happy to take them as hypotheses for investigation. So, you know, if we're saying um, you know, people are saying that there was a lot of misinformation being distributed through Facebook and through other social media channels that was in, you know, the, in, in Spanish that was basically accusing Joe Biden of being a communist. And that's what sway votes. I'm going to take that as a hypothesis for the moment. And that's one that's worth investigation. That's not something that I think we can get a clear or a genuinely insightful and rich answer to if we're not going to be using 
say qualitative methods so you know ethnography if we're not going to be in, if we're not going to actually be speaking to people in person if we're not going to look into the history of those communities and the politics you know and the political science of hispanic voters in florida they, these people aren't numbers in a table and i cannot i can't believe i'm still saying this but they are people and you can't understand them as numbers we actually you, you have to talk to them you have to you have to talk to them and you have to listen to their voices and it's just it's it just it blows my mind that that's not something that's even being really countenanced seriously in the postmortems on this election. Totally, and I think that gets to that much deeper issue that that we've been talking about for a while, that a lot of people have been talking about for a while, in the way that polling kind of obscures both obscures and drives the way politics operates. So what polling can do is tend to to drive the way that that people kind of do politics, and and get them to focus instead on that kind of on the, on the spreadsheet rather than the the emotion of politics and the heart the really difficult human work that politics involves and i think another really clear example of that is somewhere like arizona which you know we it wasn't being talked about in in coverage generally at least not here before the election but it actually looks like Arizona, which was reliably Republican for for decades, is going to flip in favour of Joe Biden. And early analysis is suggesting, and again, emphasis on early analysis, and I really like that idea, Chloe, of treating things as as a hypothesis. An early hypothesis in when it comes to Arizona is that John McCain, the the late Republican senator, you know, who who ran for president in two thousand and eight. He, he's played a, a really kind of outsized role in people's decision-making in Arizona because of the way that Donald Trump has treated him. So Trump treated him with really appalling disrespect. Of course, we've talked about civility in politics, but this early hypothesis is that the way that Donald Trump was so horribly disrespectful to John McCain has played into people's decision-making in Arizona in, in kind of repudiating Trump. And, and that is emotion at work in politics. And polling is is just as you say chloe it's it's quantitative method is is just not set up to capture what what one of chloe's favorite favorite people favorite theorists favorite whatever um raymond williams idea of the of the structures of feeling of politics yeah yeah and we could you know you could spend i think many people have spent many books and many hours talking about what we mean by a structure of feeling. Maybe we'll do a Raymond Williams hour sometime in the future. But you're, no, you're right, you know, and you're talking about quite a nebulous concept there and one that cannot, you know, that cannot be reduced to numbers. And which leads me to another point, which is that I think that there is something profoundly undemocratic about the way that polling is conducted. Not polls in themselves, because I do think that polls have their uses, but the way that polling corrals individuals and collective and collectives into numbers, it's it limits their voice in politics. And that's not to say that, you know, I think that we need to always give voice to Trump voters, um, but we do need to understand them and we can't understand them unless we actually listen to them in their own words rather than constantly funneling them and corralling them into these numbers and reducing them to data points. There's also, I think, a a degree of demographic determinism in the way that polls are conducted. And the perfect example of that would be in the way that, you know, a lot lot is extrapolated from fairly small sample sizes, particularly in ethnic minority communities. 
So, you know, it's basically, let's take this example. So, you know, if you're a, if you're a white suburban mum and you want these things from your, from your political representatives, therefore, if we offer this to you, then you're going to vote for Joe Biden or you're going to vote for, for Donald Trump. What we've seen is a situation in 2016 and 2020 where people where where people have surprised pollsters and for better or worse largely for worse in this instance that has been an expression of human agency but at the same time you know you would think that hopefully on the other side we can see surprise that is you know a good surprise for progressives like things like you know that very strange result in florida that people have yet to unpack where while the while the state went went for for Trump in the end they also endorsed a $15 minimum wage i think on the whole what we see in contemporary polling and you know amongst the pollsters who sort of dominate our thinking about that Nate Silver is the obvious example we see attempts to corral and to contain democracy rather than you know respect agency in that democracy you know actually i've you know i've come up I, just now i'm thinking of a really a really good sort of tentative illustration of this and this is Georgia which is very much in play for Joe Biden and you know Georgia is a state where and I'm going to I'm going to ask you to explain this in a little bit more detail but Georgia is a place that is notorious for racist voter suppression and yet it looks like you know you've, we've seen huge voter turnout particularly in Atlanta which has an enormous an, an enormous black american population that is going for Biden and that is against all expectations so you know this is one of those things where if a poll is correcting for voter suppression and accepting that as something that, you know, is, an, is a necessary constraint on American democracy, then sometimes people can fight and they can fight back against that and they can surprise you. Yeah, I think you're right. I think Georgia encapsulates so many of those issues because it is a state where voter suppression is just appalling and brazen. And it is amazing how so much of the discussion just kind of takes that as a given, you know, that, well, that's what happens in Georgia. That's kind of what happens in American politics. And then we kind of just move on. But I think the the way that Georgians in particular have fought back against this is, is a really extraordinary example of, of people exercising their agency, exactly as you said, Chloe. And, and this has been building for quite a long time. If we go back to 2018, only two years ago, but also like a hundred years ago, there were elections, there were the midterm elections and there were also elections in, in the state of Georgia, particularly for governor. And people might remember that Democrat, the Democratic candidate there was Stacey Abrams, who is just an extraordinary woman. So, And she was running against the Republican incumbent, Kemp, who, again, has just engaged in the most egregious and brazen voter suppression. So in, in the kind of two years before those elections, Kemp and his Republican administration purged nearly 1.5 million voters from the rolls for things like not voting in the previous election or they had enacted something called an exact match law where the signature on you know each of your documents or all of the your official documents had to match exactly which of course nobody's nobody's does that um, and this, that kind of voter suppression and a whole bunch of other me- measures, a raft of other measures, were aimed very specifically and very successfully at black voters. Um, and this is born out of that 
2013 Supreme Court decision, Chloe, that we've talked about and that Lizzie talked about in a previous episode, which basically just kind of eviscerated the the Voting Rights Act. And this had very specific consequences in Georgia. So there's this enormous purging of roles and voter suppression in, in a very kind of everyday way that we see all the time in American politics, the closing of polling booths, that making early voting really difficult, etc. So in that 2018 election, Kemp won the won the vote eventually by a margin of about around about fifty thousand votes, but he basically stole it. Like like and the, and the commentary around two thousand and eighteen was that Kemp stole the election. That that's what had happened, and then a lot of people just kind of went, oh, you know, like like that's pretty sad, and then just moved on. But in Georgia, Stacey Abrams in particular fought back really hard. She founded an organisation called Fair Fight, which is is basically aimed at enfranchising Georgians and, and as she put it, kind of fighting for democracy in America. And, and the way that Abrams frames it is that the fight for democracy and the enfranchisement of every American has to be at the centre of any kind of progressive politics. That That is where you have to begin. And in Georgia, Abrams has Abrams and her organisation has been incredibly successful in, in doing that. And in fighting back against what she has described as the way that Republicans in particular use the system to strangle democracy, which is what we've seen not just in Georgia, but across the United States. And and all of that effort has meant that now Georgia is once again in contention. It is really close. At the time of recording, we've got about 98% of votes counted. And the margin is, if I can do my maths, about 0.2 of a percent. Right. So this is how close it is. And I think this is where, you know, we see both that what Chloe has spoken about, about democracy kind of fighting back about the people's agency, but also the possibility of Republicans in particular using those systems of democracy to undermine democracy itself. I think Georgia is on an absolute knife edge. And that is, of course, you know, as I think you're making making abundantly clear, that's not to underestimate the challenge here. And that is you know, it's one of the very few things that has become very clear in the aftermath of this election is that Donald Trump's vote exists. It is resilient. It has not gone away because of coronavirus. It has not gone away because of Joe Biden's campaign. And it is available. It is available into the future. And I think that, you know, perhaps I wouldn't say that this is something we've, we've, between us, we've underestimated. I think we've, you know, been fairly, fairly suspicious of this from the start. But even, even you and I, we were, we, we were quite surprised and appalled and aggrieved at what is, you know, the real, the power of whiteness in shaping Amer- you know, in, in, in shaping the American electorate. It is like I, I think it's it's one thing to know that it's there, um, you know. To going back to, for example, to our conversation with Lizzie O'Brien about her time in rural Pennsylvania and confronting that kind of whiteness. It's one thing to know that it's there intellectually. It's another thing to be confronted with it so powerfully, um, and to see just how how centered it is in American politics. To see how just how the American the entire American political system is constructed to center that and I think that's obvious when you look at a place like Pennsylvania and the role that the Electoral College plays, again, to go back to that 
foundation of American politics and the fact that the Electoral College is created in order to preserve slavery as an institution. The Electoral College is inherently racist and that legacy is not going away. We are once again being confronted with the systemic racism in the American political system and the fact that whiteness is entirely centred. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, there's 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 a there's a clip that's been doing the rounds in the last couple of days and it's Eddie Eddie Glaude Jr. I think that's how I hopefully we've pronounced his surname correctly who is the James S McDonald's Distinguished University Professor at Princeton but it's a clip from 2019 which I think is worth playing at some length because he really does express in quite vivid and really he expresses in quite a vivid way what we're talking about here I mean you know America's not unique in its sins as a country. We're not unique in our evils, to be honest with you. Um, I think where we, where we may be singular is our fu- a refusal to acknowledge them mm. and the legends and myths we tell about our inherent, you know, goodness uh, to hide and cover and conceal so that we can maintain a kind of willful ignorance that protects our innocence. See, the thing is that when we, the Tea Party was happening, we used people were we were saying pundits. Oh, it's just about economic populism. <laughs> it's not about race. <clears throat> when people knew, people knew. Social scientists were already writing that what was driving the Tea Party were anxieties about economic demographic anxiety. shifts, that the country was changing, that they were seeing these racially ambiguous babies on, on Cheerios commercials, that the country wasn't quite feeling like it was a white nation anymore, and people were screaming from the top of their lungs. Yo, this is not just simply economic populism. This is the ugly underbelly of the country. See, the thing is, is this, and I'll say this, and I'll take the hit on it. There are communities that have had to bear the brunt of America confronting, white Americans confronting the danger of their innocence. And it happens every generation. So somehow we have to kind of, oh my God, is this who we are? And just again, another, here's another generation of babies. Think about it. That two-year-old had his bro- bones broken by two parents trying to shield him from being killed. A woman who has been married to this man for as long as I've been on the planet almost lost her, lost her husband. For what? And so what we know is that the country has been playing politics for a long time on this hatred. We know this. So it's easy for us to place it all on Donald Trump's shoulders. It's easy for us to place Pittsburgh on his shoulders. It's easy for me to place Charlottesville on his shoulders. It's easy for us to place El Paso on his shoulders. This is us. And if we're going to get past this, we can't blame it on him. He's a manifestation of the ugliness that's in us. I've had the privilege of growing up in a tradition that didn't believe in the myths and the legends because we had to bear the brunt of them. Either we're going to change, Nicole, or we're going to do this again and again, and babies are going to have to grow up without mothers and fathers, uncles and aunts, friends, while we're trying to convince white folk to finally leave behind a history that will maybe, maybe, or embrace a history that might set them free from being white. Finally. I think that what that clip does is remind us, you know, when he's saying that we we do this 
every cycle or we do this every generation, we're confronted with the whiteness of American politics. That seems to me to be, Chloe, something that um, centrists and I guess the Democratic establishment consistently underestimate. When when Joe Biden is focused on seeing the goodness in people and in, you know, working across the aisle with segregationist senators, um, in, in some ways, you know, Joe Biden's being a, a decent human being blinds him to the extreme indecency of, of basically some of his fellow white people. And that, that seems to be, as we just heard, a very consistent pattern in American politics. And I think one of the unresolved questions of this election, which I think we'll probably come back to in more depth next week, is will the Democratic Party, assuming that Joe Biden is able to eke out that victory, will it finally take that lesson on board and what will it do about it and I think one of one of the ways that that question at least not certainly not an answer but one of the the ways that question is emerging in is in Chloe this assertion that Bernie Sanders would have won if the Democrats had nominated Bernie Sanders, then we wouldn't have such a close election. We'd have a landslide. And one of the examples that people are citing, Chloe, is, is one you mentioned earlier, that, that one in Florida where, you know, Florida has voted to return Donald Trump to office but also voted in favour of a $15 minimum wage. So this is kind of an example of how uh, that people are taking to say that Bernie Sanders' platform would have been much more appealing to people than Biden's kind of more centrist role. I think it's a really interesting question to ask, you know, would Bernie Sanders have won? But I just feel totally unable to answer that question, Chloe. I don't know about you. I Look, I, you know, and I think the way I've seen it phrased has been mostly is almost, you know, not, not in an insincere way or a glib way, but also there's kind of an element of preemptive defense to it, because we can also see that the moderate democratic moderates in the party they are gearing up to blame the left for this, for this, you know, for Biden not winning enough of a margin. So, you know, you can see that argument is also percolating that if Biden hadn't, if, if sorry, if Bernie hadn't challenged in the primary season, then Biden would have had a clear run at the presidency, which I think is, I, I think is frankly nonsense. And I think it also does, it does a massive disservice to Bernie Sanders and his supporters, Bernie Sanders in particular, who has worked tirelessly for, for Joe Biden's election during the election season proper. I think that that is, you know, I, quite frankly, I think it's offensive to suggest that he in any way, either willfully or not, um, disrupted Joe Biden's chances at this election. But that other question, would Bernie have won? I don't think we have a way of knowing that. And I think that the, you know, I keep coming back to what we've seen in terms of the resilience of the Trump vote and the fact that it has increased again. That is not just a challenge for centrists. It is a challenge for progressives. It is a challenge for the left. And there is a reckoning that needs to be, that needs to be had across the spectrum. Like it needs, you know, anyone who is concerned for democracy, anyone who is concerned for racial justice, for economic equality, needs to deal with that issue. That is the the big takeaway from this election at this point. I think that kind of gets to something else that I've been thinking about a lot, you know, this week in particular, which is that, you know, multiple things can be true at once. Like we don't, there, there are no simple answers to any of these questions. Polling can be both, you know, mostly accurate, but also extremely problematic 
American democracy is broken, but people are also fighting back against that. And it, you know, maybe sort of working in places like Georgia, contingent events like the ongoing legacy of someone like John McCain have unexpected results and all of this kind of percolates together and it makes things really complicated. But I think you're right, Chloe, one of those massive challenges is the resilience of that Trump vote and explaining how it is so resilient in the face of 230,000 plus deaths and the way that different things play a role in that, the, the role of whiteness and the intersection of that whiteness with wealth. Because one of the things that we do know, or we, well, I guess we think we know, is that where one of the places where Trump has increased his vote is with basically white people who earn over $100,000 a year. So these are people who have benefited directly from, from things like Trump's tax cuts. And given that 68 million plus Americans, um, at my last check, it's probably well more than that, 68 million plus Americans in a non-compulsory voting system chose to go out and vote for Donald Trump. And given that means that, sure, Biden, it looks likely that Biden will be president. He will be presiding over a country in which 68 million of his fellow Americans chose Donald Trump over him. And because of that, and because of the nature of the American political system, it means that he, you know, may only win the Electoral College by a couple of votes and may not even have the Senate behind him Given all that we know about this and all that we know about Biden, I'm not sure that he and his administration is going to be able to tackle these deep-seated historical and systemic problems in the United States. Thank you, as always, for listening to a very tired version of Barely Getting By. You can subscribe to our newsletter. There's a link in the show notes. That will be coming out on Monday as we wait for some more concrete results coming out of the United States. And we'll be back next week with an episode on what happens next in American politics. 